So let's get into Romans 9. I'm going to break this up into some sections. So open up your Bibles, and we're going to read uh, verses 14 through 18 first, and then talk about them. And if you were here last week, you guys already covered verses 14 through 18 when, when Pastor Centers taught this section. But it's really difficult to move on because it all fits together. So we're going to hit those verses a little bit again and see how they flow into this next section and connect everything, okay? So verse 14, 914. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So we'll stop right there for now. And uh, in your introduction there, we just need to remember where are we coming from in Romans. So Romans, the big idea of Romans, if you could remember one word for the book of Romans, that word I, I think would be the best to remember would be righteousness. Righteousness. In Romans, we see that God's righteousness is revealed, and the whole book is showing how that righteousness of God is, is in him, how it comes by faith, and how the law is righteous to judge us for our sin. Um, and I'm going to quickly just walk us through each chapter and give you a quick summary of each chapter and how the, the, the word righteousness fits in in God's righteousness. Um, chapter 1, we see that the gospel is the power for salvation. 4, it is in it that the righteousness of God is revealed. Chapter 2, we see that God's righteous in his judgment. Chapter 3, no one is righteous, it says. And the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law, and it is revealed and upheld that God is righteous in that. Uh, chapter 4, we see that faith was counted to Abraham in the Old Testament as righteousness. Chapter 5, we see that one act of righteousness leads to justification. The one act of obedience of Christ Jesus leads to justification. Chapter 6, it says we are slaves to righteousness. In chapter 7, we see the law shows us that we are not righteous, that the law is good, and yet it shows us that we are not righteous. Chapter 8, we see that nothing can take away your righteousness if it is yours in Christ. Nothing can take away that righteousness. Justification cannot be taken away. In chapter 9, we're going to see by the end of this how righteousness is worked out in Paul's theology in chapter 9. So let's start with... Uh, this section, uh, chapter 9, being about Israel, chapter 9 through 11 is about Israel, but it's not really mostly about Israel. We'll see here that, that really, as commentators point out, that the, the passage is about the integrity of God here. All these chapters are about God's integrity and working with his people. And so as we've seen justification by faith, Paul's been working that out in Romans and what that is and how we, we can have righteousness in Christ it seems like something's wrong because all these promises that were to Israel in the New Testament church, there weren't that many Jews that were Christians. There's a lot of Gentiles. The church was, was primarily Gentile with a few Jews. And so has God's word failed is the question. Has God failed in his promises to Israel because mostly Gentiles in the New Testament church are what we see? Um, and Paul's going to argue that no, God's word has not failed. And we're going to see that. God's word and promises to Israel have not failed. 
And he uses the Old Testament to prove his point. So verse 14, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? All this has been going on, and we see that the Gentiles are brought into the church. What's going on? Why, why are there, there not that many Jews? Has God's word failed? And Paul says, uh, is God unjust? He, answer, he asked the questions that some of us are thinking. Is God unjust? And he's going to ask a, in a little bit, you see in your outline, he's going to say, how can God blame people? And he's going to talk about that question. And he may answer those questions to your liking, but he may not. Most likely, if you're like me, you're looking for some answers to these questions that are a little more straightforward and rational. And Paul does not do that in the way that you would think. Paul addresses these anticipated questions, um, but we see that he's, he's arguing based on a different perspective than we often would want those questions answered according to. So what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And then he goes into a quote from the Old Testament. Now, before we can, we can get into that Old Testament quote, the question, is there injustice on God's part, how, how can we ask that question or on what basis? So your discussion question here is what standard, if we're going to ask God if he is just in this or is, how is God just in this, is he unjust, what standard can we use when asking that question? What standard do we use when we ask that question? Just thoughts. So, yeah, the world views it as unjust and, and, and views him as unjust, maybe. Okay. Yeah, so you have to, you're saying you have to look at God in order to even get a definition for what is justice. Um, so if you're going to ask the question, is God just, well, what's your, what's your measuring stick? What's your measuring stick for justice? What is anybody's measuring stick for what is just or unjust in the world? And you guys, what, what do you think? What, what, what do people measure justice by? Themselves? Yeah. What does that look like? Yeah, yeah. We, we bolter ourselves up by looking out at others and just, just, just thinking that, okay, they're this bad, I'm better than them, therefore that's, I'm better. That's my measuring stick. Yeah, yeah. We need we need something solid that's going to define for us what justice is, right? It can't be ourselves. We're changing. We're in flux. None of us are perfect. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's the, the direction that Paul goes, is Paul's going to take the Old Testament to make a case for justice and God's justice. And he's going to use that in the passage. So, and as, uh, as Mingledorf pointed out, really, at the end of the day, you have no standard of what's just or unjust apart from God. He himself is the standard. And so, as we're going to see Paul kind of argue, who are you, O man, to question God? Who am I? Because he is the standard. His character is revealed in Scripture. Um, so we can only use whatever standard God gives us because we are finite beings. We're created, and he is the creator. So he is the one who is the measure of what is just or unjust. Um, mm-hmm. Right, right, yes. And that gives us something solid to stand on. <laughs> it gives us some, somewhere to actually stand. Um, so Paul's argument here, so he's, he's been teaching that, that there is such, that Israel had all the promises of God in the, Old, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, but there was an elect portion from Israel. So not all Israel necessarily will be saved. We'll, we'll see this as we move through, but He's teaching from the Old Testament there's always been an elect Israel, spiritual Israel, that just like, you know, in the church today, that we have many in the, in the church visibly, but we don't know who, the, who is actually uh, a true believer, and there are, the Bible teaches that there will be weed among the tares. There will be those who are not true believers in the church, in the visible church. And so in Israel, there are, there are many who are part of the nation of Israel, but were not part of God's elect Okay, and so Paul is teaching from Scripture, is God unjust? And he's going to argue from the Old Testament that no, God is not unjust. That he is acting in accordance with his revealed will. So we see that he quotes um, the Old Testament twice here, uh, verses 15 through 18. In verse 15, he's referring to Moses, uh, when Moses uh, asked the Lord to walk before him, and he put him in the cleft, God put him in the cleft of the rock, the Lord went before him and saw the hind part of his glory. And uh, after that, he says, I will have, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so God is the one that gets to call that. He's saying, I, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Um, it's my prerogative as God. And that is in accord with, with what's revealed of God in the Old Testament. So God is, we have to, trust that what is, what is true of him is true of him, and we base justice off of what he's revealed in himself, and he acts according to his revealed character. Mercy cannot be earned by humans, is what we see in the Old Testament. And so Paul is arguing it's still the same. Mercy cannot be earned by humans now. It's always upon the freeness of his grace. And then the flip side of that, we see that he quotes um, the Old Testament talking about Pharaoh, and he says in verse 17, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And this is a difficult uh, passage uh, for us to look at and for a lot of people that it clearly teaches the Lord will have mercy on whomever he wills, but he also hardens whomever he wills. Uh, what, does that act, what does that exactly mean? Well, in our finite understanding, I don't know how much of this you're, we're going to comprehend this side of eternity. But we can, ex- we can explore it to the best of our ability. Um, so my discussion question for us, jumping in a little deep water, <laughs> this is, uh, this is the, hot, the hot question to bring up. It might cause some debate, but I hope, hope we, can, we can talk about it. Uh, do, do these verses teach double predestination? Does it teach double predestination? And what are, what are our thoughts on that? Okay, so, and depending on who you talk to, double predestination means different things, right? So usually, I'm going to double predestination in the sense that um, will turn most people away from Romans 9 and be the one that causes a lot of people to uh, think that the scriptures or God is unfair, is when you think of double predestination is that God has, just as he's elected some to mercy in eternity and to salvation, that he has also actively chosen some to be damned and that those were by his choice going to be damned. That's usually the trip up for people and what they hear when they hear double predestination, that's what they hear. So, well, if God elected some to mercy and to be saved, that means he elected some that no matter what, they were going to be damned. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And does this passage teach that? Okay, yeah, yeah. Other th-
Good points, good points. I opened up a can of worms. I knew, I, I didn't know if I should, but. Right. Yeah. Right. And he didn't have to do that. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. God would be completely just if no one ever was saved. Right. Because all of us, because of sin and our hatred of God by nature, are deserving of wrath and judgment. And so when you see it that way, that both the, those who have mercy on them and don't are both deserving of the same judgment. It's only out of God's mercy that any, that any of us are saved. Um, yeah. <laughs> So this, this is a difficult question, and the, the thing is, is you're getting into, we're finite beings, and this is God, and Paul, when he talks about this stuff, he quotes the Old Testament just to show that God's in keeping with his character, which at the end of the day, who are we to question? Who are we to question him and his character and how he carries out his glorious works um, in this world? Um, I will say, you know... <laughs> I, I, will, I will say that this is a, a difficult, difficult doctrine for a lot of people, and it can be one that if it, if it is not sitting right with you, it's because something, you're not understanding something rightly about God and his character and the scriptures, and that's okay, and it takes time to work through these things often. Um, but I will say that in, in history and all the, the best uh, theologians and commentators, most of them usually fall on the side of understanding uh, God here to using double predestination in the sense of that he does predestine to wrath those who deserve it, and he does predestine to salvation those he has mercy on. And I want to take us real quick. Well, go ahead, John. I'm going to let you get the thought out, then we'll go on. 
But he wouldn't be just. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's the basically what. You know, what we're getting at, what Paul's getting at in Romans, is how has, does God remain merciful but yet just? And we find that that only happens in a person taking the penalty on the cross, right? The Son of God taking penalty on the cross so that God's mercy and justice meet. So that there is a way that he can be declared he's fully just because wrath has been poured out on sin, and yet he's able to spill out his abundant mercy on his people. Um, so I want to read to us from the Westminster Confession. If you, if you want to look, it's in your Trinity hymnal in the back, uh, page 850. Uh, Westminster Confession, chapter 3, and paragraph 7. It's on page 850. And this is, you know, historic creeds that men have wrestled with trying to comprehend or talk about these things that a finite man just, we're, we're rubbing up against the, you know, where it's difficult for us to even fathom a holy God's plans. Um, so it says, uh, chapter 3, uh, paragraph 7, The rest of mankind God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by, and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin, to the praise of his glorious grace. So I think that some of this language here helps us get at some things. So he says, as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by, okay? So there's a sense in that he's passing by that there are, all of us are, are damned in sin, right? Apart from God's mercy. And it's not necessarily that we would say that he is actively pursuing certain people to go to hell, but he is passing by some and not having mercy as he does on others. That there's some that he passes by and leaves them in the condemnation that they justly, that we justly deserve. That there are some that he passes by and God is active and that he does ordain, it says he ordains them to dishonor and wrath for their sin. So this is not unjust, but he is ordaining them to what as a holy just God he must do. There must be justice for sin, and they are ordained to wrath for that sin. Um, took their place, yeah, yeah. So he, he's, he's actually applying 
Right, right. Yeah, yeah. The gospel, yeah. Um, so I think some of that language can be helpful in some of the confessions and creeds for us um, to understand some of this. And we, we won't take a lot any more time on that because that, that's, a, that's a deep, difficult question that we could spend all day on if we, if we allowed it. Uh, but God, and we understand, he is just and he's faithful in his mercy. Um, so now we move on to verse 19 which says, you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? So as we've been talking about, God is, is just, and he hardens whom he wills, and he has mercy on whom, he's, whom he wills. How can he find fault with anyone? How can he find fault with anyone? And Paul doesn't try to give you an answer for this. He doesn't try to give you the kind of answer you want. But he answers a question with a question. The question we're all asking, well, how, is, you know, how can someone be blamed if they're, you know, God's the one that hardens? Well, he says in verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? <laughs> he answers a question with a question. Who are you, O man? Who am I to, to, to question God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So there you see it flip, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So Paul's being quick to say that even you, even I, we are the ones that this mercy is for, that though God has... Um, had mercy on whom he would and hardened whom he would, that this mercy was for his glory and for our good, that not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles they would be a remnant saved. So Paul is, 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 is showing that God's mercy is not only for the Jews but for the Gentiles. Um, and who are we to question God and how he determines that and how he works out his mercy towards us? Um, might not be the answer intellectually that we all were looking for, but it's the answer that God gives based on the fact that we're the creature and he's the creator. Um, who are we to question him and his actions, and how, how could the clay ask the potter, why have you made me like this? So the creature has no right to question the creator, and Paul's purpose is not to explain how God's sovereignty and human responsibility coexist. We've talked about this before that the Bible a lot of times holds two seemingly opposing, contrary ideas. For instance, he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. Um, that you are, as a Christian, predestined by God and elect under his mercy, but also you have to believe the gospel and you have to have faith. That you have to trust in him or you're not saved. So they sometimes seem like opposing things, but the Bible always just holds them together. They coexist, and it doesn't try to explain them away. And so there are some things that, you know, when we talk about God's sovereignty and human responsibility, we're responsible as human beings to put on Christ and put away sin. And yet it's only by his grace that we do those things. Um, I don't know perfectly how intellectually that works, but God is God and I am not, right? And I'm thankful that he does have mercy <laughs> on some. And all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, and you can take that to the bank. <laughs> um, so his primary issue is to show God's freedom. God is completely free in creating a people for himself by accepting some and rejecting others. And I think this discussion question we've already kind of answered. Why does Paul not try to explain how people can legitimately be blamed for what God decides they will do? How can, uh, how does Paul explain that? Well, Paul doesn't try to explain that. <laughs> he says, who are you to ask that question in the first place? Right, yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. Put Job back in his place. Yeah. John. Right. Yeah, yeah. That when you can't argue for anything when he is the standard, there, you know what else is there to argue? He is the standard. Yeah, that's exactly the point. Um, so we won't belabor that uh, anymore. So we see that uh, Paul has asked two questions: Is God unjust, and how can he blame people? And he has not answered those intellectually the way many of us would look for, but he has pushed us back to understanding. God's revealed character in the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament teach about who God is, and has God remained faithful to that? And Paul shows that he has. He, he is still being faithful to his character through the Old Testament, to have mercy on whom you will have mercy, and to have hardened whom you will harden, um, that he is just in doing those things. And so he moves on in uh, verse 23-24 to focus on really what he started off and to show that God is sovereign in his election in chapter 9, that God is sovereign in electing some of Israel and not all of Israel, that there is a spiritual Israel, a remnant, that will be saved, but not phys the whole physical nation of Israel is not per se the one that will be saved, but those faithful elect out of this nation of Israel, spiritual Israel. You've seen in Romans and other places, he says, is not those who are circumcised, who are in the covenant, but those who are circumcised of heart, spiritually, not just outward being conformed to a standard, but inwardly being changed. And those are the true elect, the true spiritual Israel. Um, so now we get into to 24, even as whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And so we get back to the point, is God faithful to his word? That there are few Jews and a lot of Gentiles is God faithful. And he argues from Hosea. Verse 25 says, as indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. So he quotes Hosea to see, say, look, it, it said in Hosea, 
that those like the Gentiles who were not God's people will be called God's people. And those who were um, not called sons of the living God will be called sons of the living God. It says that in Hosea. Um, Paul is pointing back to the Old Testament to make his argument that Gentiles, that was always the, the point that God was going to do. He was going to take people and he was going to make them part of his elect that were not formerly. And so uh, if you know Hosea well enough or the Old Testament well enough, you'll see that Hosea's prediction happened through the preaching of the gospel on this side. But let's go back to the Old Testament. What was happening in Hosea when he said that? Well, Paul doesn't seem to quote the Old Testament in keeping with that context here. It seems that Paul has just picked it up and, and, and done what he wants to with it because Hosea was originally predicting the return of the northern tribes um, and not the conversion per se of Gentiles in that moment in history in Hosea. So how does Paul determine that this text is applying to the Gentiles now in the gospel if Hosea originally meant it as a return for the northern tribes. And this, this, stumble, this stumbles a lot of scholars because there are portions in the New Testament where Paul will quote the Old Testament and it's not really clear from the context how he got there. Like, how did you take that, Paul, and then apply it like this? Any thoughts? <laughs> Paul's inspired. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thought? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. We see this all the time, that there's a, like a partial fulfillment in the Old Testament. You'll see something going on that's pointing forward to a much greater fulfillment that's going to come. We see that all the time. Uh, and I'll, I'll point out, uh, Dr. Mu was really helpful in his commentary on this and, and pointing some things out, that when you, read, when you read that section Hosea, right before that he says that, he, do, he doesn't quote it here, but the words before, those who are not my people, I'll call my people, he says that the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, okay? And you remember hearing that, how God promises in the Old Testament that Israel, and he promises to Abraham that your offspring will be like the sand on the, on the, on the beach and that, like the stars in the heavens. They'll be innumerable. And that language kind of calls forth um, this idea that Abraham's going to be the father of many nations, remember? That Abraham's going to be the father of many nations, that his seed is going to spiritually be much greater and so we see here that probably Paul is, is, is seeing a lot of that and seeing the gospel come forward and seeing the promises made to Abraham to be the father of many nations, that, his, that they'd be like the sand on the beaches by the ocean, that there is in this the hope that is now being fulfilled in the gospel. Many nations through the Gentiles are coming in, right? That every tribe, tongue, and nation is going to hear the gospel and be brought into God's people. 
And so Paul is, is, is saying, hey, look, this is Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled before our eyes, that the Gentiles are brought in, and it's not just the Jews. Um, so that was helpful for me, and I get, it's, it's exciting to watch how these Old Testament texts are interpreted. Um, and then he also quotes from Isaiah 10, and he says, and it says, Isaiah, verse 27, cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. You see that? So that's actually in the quote from Hosea, but he didn't actually put it in the text. But if you go back and read Hosea, it says the same thing. But then he quotes Isaiah, and Isaiah is the one who says it also, that though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So Isaiah already said that only a remnant will be saved, only a remnant. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And you remember that Sodom and Gomorrah were completely demolished by God's judgment. And Paul is saying that if it had not been for the offspring the Lord left, for his mercy, that we would have been just like Sodom and Gomorrah. So we see here that Paul has used the Old Testament to bolster our questions, is God just? And he says, yes. Is, is it right for him to blame you? You don't get to ask that question. <laughs> He's the potter, you're the clay. Um, be thankful that he does have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and that it is open to all those who will trust and believe um, those promises given by God. And so now we get to uh, the very end of chapter 9, which is difficult because it, it transitions, so it's almost like this is really transitioning into chapter 10, which you'll hear next week. Um, but it wraps up chapter 9, so we've got to talk about it, um, where he says... He asks another question. So this time he says, what shall we say then? What shall we say then to all these things that we've been talking about? What is, what is the conclusion that we arrive at when we see that God is merciful on whom he will be and, and uh, just to harden whom he will? And he says, verse 30, what shall we say then? And then he makes a definitive statement. This isn't a question. It's a definitive statement. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Paul concludes this, and as the, the whole book of Romans, the theme really is righteousness, the righteousness of God. He ends this section and shows how the righteousness of God is fulfilled here in the Gentiles. That the Gentiles, they were not pursuing God's law. They were not pursuing righteousness with the God of Israel. And yet, they are the ones who have attained it by faith. By faith. And the Jews, the ones who had the law, had the promises, had everything from God, they were trying to attain this righteousness before God by that law, and it says that they did not succeed, that they failed. Because why? Because it was not done in faith. That there is a righteousness by faith that must be given freely, and that happens only in the gospel in Christ. Justification by faith, the declaration of righteousness to those who do not deserve it by faith. And so Israel missed, they missed what God was giving by faith. And the Gentiles who weren't even looking for it, they weren't even trying to find it, it's come to them. 
is come to them. A people who were not my people will be called my people. And so we just see Paul, an expert in the scriptures, taking everything, fighting for the justice of God and his declarations, that he is consistent with the Old Testament and everything he's taught, and he is merciful to give righteousness by faith to all those who believe. And so that wraps up chapter, chapter 9 for us. Um, before we close, any uh, quick thoughts or questions? Yeah. So her response is totally opposite to the Jewish response. When God calls you a sinner, how do you respond to that? Respond in humility and acknowledge, yes, I believe I am a sinner. And that has changed the heart. If you bow up and say, I'm not any worse than anybody else, then okay, we haven't said it. Yeah, exactly. You're, it's, a good, it's a good point. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's always, you know, the Israelites, when pointed out for sin, they were like, well, no, 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 we're righteous. We deserve, we deserve this covenant with God. And the Gentiles are the ones who be like, you're right. Have mercy. Have mercy. I'm a sinner. And those are the ones who will be saved, the ones who can admit and understand that I don't deserve it. And it's only by God's mercy that I'll ever receive it. It's by his mercy and grace only. You know, the number one, the number one, um, killer of, of humans in the world, <laughs> self-righteousness. It'll kill more people than anything else, self-righteousness. If you don't look for a righteousness outside yourself, you're done for. It must come by faith in Jesus Christ to all those who believe. Um, so let's close and we'll get ready for worship.